the Prigozhin Mutiny, or 36 hours of what the hell? Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow shadows. This podcast of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons like you, and also by the crisis exercise software company, Conductor. So, of course, no prizes as to what I'm going to be covering today, even though... It is still quite close to the events. We still don't know a lot of things. And frankly, I haven't even got my own thoughts in order. So this will likely be a slightly incoherent assessment of what happened, why it happened, insofar as I could possibly speculate. And perhaps most importantly of all, so what? So what do we see? So on Friday, Evgeny Prigozhin, head of the Wagner mercenary group, claims that the regular military launched a missile strike on Wagner personnel. A video is presented that, frankly, certainly I find, I'm not an expert in open source assessment and so forth, but nonetheless I find pretty unconvincing, and I think many other people do as well. And he announces, not a coup, not a mutiny, but a march for justice. Then on Saturday... His forces take, without a shot being fired, Rostov-on-Don, headquarters of the Southern Military District and one of the key hubs in support of operations in Ukraine. Then Voronezh, much closer to Moscow. And basically his forces come within 200 kilometres of Moscow. Though I think one point that's worth making, it does not seem to be that it was the entire Wagner force, which first of all was not the 25,000 that Prigozhin claims, it's closer to 10,000. But in any case, you know, we have forces which were holding Rostov-on-Don, forces which were at Voronezh and Lipetsk. Probably it's a, a sort of force of about 4,000 that was approaching Moscow. That's important, we'll, we'll come back to that. Anyway, so it looks as if he's actually going to be seizing Moscow. And then on Sunday, we hear that a deal has been struck, apparently through the good offices of none other than Alexander Lukashenko, the dictator of Belarus. Although this is what we're hearing from the Russian government side and the Belarusian side. We haven't had it confirmed from Prigozhin. And what's going to happen is that Prigozhin is going to go to Belarus. Charges against him are dropped even though you know, Putin had very much characterised what was going on in distinctly intemperate, though not inaccurate terms, as, as treason and such like, that Wagner troops who did not participate in this adventure will have the opportunity to sign up with the Ministry of Defence, and the rest, well, basically, they'll, they'll just be let go, which basically means that Wagner in Russia and in Ukraine would, from the sound of it, actually no longer really exist but clearly Wagner in the rest of the world still can and well that's what we're told is the deal we haven't yet seen Prigozhin go to Belarus at least as of recording this which is just before four o'clock on Sunday the 25th of June but generally speaking clearly de-escalation has taken place now 
in part, I should say, I'll be rehashing some of the issues that I mentioned in my patrons-only sort of snap response uh, that I sent around yesterday. So, okay, what does this say? Well, first of all, for me, one of the key things, and it's something that I, that I have been sort of banging on about, is how this demonstrates the increasing debilitation of the Putin regime. It's increasing incapacity to deal with crises. And I've sort of said that basically, you know, when a, a black swan flutters into view over the Kremlin, that's when we get to actually see the remaining strengths and weaknesses of the system really brought into sharp relief. Okay, so this particular black swan turned out to be more of a, a black duck. But nonetheless, it, I, th I would suggest both is a symptom and a further accelerator of this process. Now, the irony is this. Look, Putin actually handled this probably as well as could be in the sense of a deal that basically buys off Prigozhin but neutralizes the problem. The sight of actually sort of deploying Russian military forces on a mass scale against Wagner, which could conceivably have led to fighting inside Voronezh and Rostov-on-Don, I mean, that would have been deeply disruptive and would have raised questions, which I'll come to in a bit, about precisely the loyalty of the military. An authoritarian leader should always be worried about the risk of giving an order that is not going to be obeyed, because at that point you begin to really lose your, your credibility and legitimacy. So, you know, in those circumstances, although I, I would suggest that this whole crisis is a symptom, a product rather, of Putin's own failures to manage his own political system, nonetheless, the actual resolution of the crisis seems to have been as good as could be. But that doesn't matter because for many others, what really matters is that it has demonstrated, first of all, that Putin was not able to control his own creature. Remember, Prigozhin is totally a creation of Vladimir Putin. It was Putin's patronage that really got his restaurant business on the road in the 1990s. It's Putin that made sure that a whole variety of different contracts went towards Concord Group, which is Prigozhin's overall holding company. And in return, Prigozhin became one of the go-to businessmen that the Kremlin turned to when they needed things done, whether it was running troll farms to interfere with the US elections or whether it was setting up a mercenary organisation. It's worth noting that it doesn't look as if actually the initiative for either of those came from Prigozhin, but rather that the Kremlin called, and Prigozhin basically did what he was told, and of course made a lot of money out of the process. So this is it. I mean, this is Dr Frankenstein being laid low by his own creature. And what's more, Putin for a long time had ignored and neglected the escalating crisis between Prigozhin and the Defence Ministry, which is the, at least the ostensible cause of, of, of this whole farrago. That's his job, and that's only his job, is to resolve these intra-elite crises that are frankly baked into the whole system. They're part of the system. Divide and rule is how Putin manages the elite. But the point is that only works when the boss is on top of things and steps in before these rivalries become system-threatening. Putin failed to do that. Prigozhin, in effect, got away with it. Now, OK, we'll, we'll wait and see how long he gets away with it. We do know how Putin feels about traitors, and that his view is that you know, enemies you fight with, but someday maybe you can reach a peace with. 
Traitors, you can do nothing with them but wipe them out because oh, someday they will slip a knife in your back. So I think that, uh, you know, the usual jokes about windows and cups of tea and so forth apply here. So basically, this is about a systemic crisis, which has been just about sort of fudged, but, but demonstrated actually how weak the system has become and frankly left Putin weaker. Come back to that. Why on earth did this happen? I mean, I can't help but feel, and this is just speculation, I can't help but feel that Prigozhin found out that he was going to be arrested, dismissed, or whatever. Because it is clear that, that Shoigu, Defence Minister Shoigu, had been winning the sort of behind-the-scenes element of their political rivalry. And therefore, Prigozhin decided to strike first and try and bring down his enemy. Remember, his ostensible goal originally was just simply the dismissal of Shoigu and Chief of the General Staff Gerasimov, and generally to make himself too high profile, too dangerous, but also in some ways to show his power so that no one would try and move against him. I mean, otherwise, it's very hard to, to understand this. I see no sign, for example, that he was acting as some kind of a cat's paw for a cabal of people who wanted to bring down Putin or whatever. And I certainly see no signs that this was actually orchestrated by Putin. I mean, this is one of the problems that, uh, you know, whenever anything happens like this, you will get someone say, oh, false flag, false flag. In 1999, there were these apartment bombings, blamed on the Chechens, but almost certainly actually done, carried out by the security forces, possibly with Putin's knowledge, possibly as a sort of um, a gift from his backers. Just because that happened, that does not mean that everything that happens thereafter is a result of some shadowy conspiracy. So yeah, let's treat that with some, some caution. So this is it. beyond that, it's, it's very hard really to understand this, and this will be one of the interesting things we wait and see. There's probably also a degree of emotion. I think uh, Prigozhin's performances in his social media videos, in which he sort of splenetically attacks Shuigu and Gerasimov, talks about his, his dead boys and where's my fucking ammunition and so forth, I don't think that was just simply acting. I think that was essentially a very tribal individual who feels he's being hard done by, feels his and his soldiers' role in this war is being underplayed and under-recognised. Over time, this builds up a sort of a, a pressure that has to be vented eventually. And I think that also sort of leads to a certain amount of impulse control failure, which could, could well have led to this. And also helps explain quite why Pigozhin ultimately backed down even when his forces were so close to Moscow. There are other reasons, and I'll come to them in a moment. But I think it also, I wonder if, again, speculation, amateur psychology here, I wonder if there's an element in which Prigozhin realised that he was had already gone too far, but was teetering on the point of going even even further than that, to a point where basically he would not be able to survive it. And so after the kind of exhilaration and probably an expect, you know, an awareness that he'd actually pushed further and more quickly than he'd originally anticipated, that there's a certain amount of realism that, that crashes in. But more broadly, I mean, why, why did he back down? Well, I, I would suggest it also reflects the fact that there were not mass defections to Wagner from the regular military and the other security forces. I mean, he himself had said 
that, and again, you know, he has a tendency to speak in hyperbole. But nonetheless, he, he had said that he expected half the army to join him. Well, I mean, look, again, it's very hard to sh be sure. I think maybe we're talking about 60 or 70 guys who joined. Instead, what we actually had was a, a certain degree of passive support in that people were just not so much willing to actually try and stop Wagner in its movement. And that is important, and that's something that, that we really have to recognise. It definitely it shows the weakness of the state and its authority over many of its own security apparatus uh, elements, which is something that I also I've, I've been sort of pointing to. And also uncertainty. Look, this is not a system which encourages initiative. And it's also a system which is frankly uh, hierarchical and slow in its operations often. And I think in that context, you know, people were just not willing to act without direct orders, either because they just feared being hung out to dry if they guessed wrong, or else because actually they had a certain sympathy for maybe Prigozhin and the fact that he's looking after his guys, or his critique of the war and of the, the government apparatus as a whole. Remember that Prigozhin then later on said that they were going against bureaucracy and corruption and such like, and I don't think you'll find many cops or soldiers who are actually in favour of bureauc bureaucracy and corruption, given that they're not the beneficiaries of either. So, I mean, in that context, it may well be that people found it useful to not have received direct orders. But the point is, that's different from outright defection. That's different from actually... Courting the prospect of civil war, courting the prospect of being tried for treason. So suddenly he found himself with, even if it was all 10,000, but I would say 4,000 troops on the outskirts of, of Moscow. Sure, they could get into Moscow, but what are they going to do then? They could seize some main buildings, and in fact, well, that will really be equivalent to, you know, a terrorist hostage-taking situation. They faced... Some serious security forces. I mean, if, if one looks at the defenders of Moscow, there are two army divisions. Now, at least part of those forces are currently sort of deployed down on the Ukraine front. But nonetheless, there's meant to be at least a regiment of each still at base. So, again, depending on level of level of, of manning and everything else, we took, could be talking four or five thousand personnel, all told. There's the oversized National Guard Zhezhinsky Division, the 1st Odon. That's more than 10,000, with, it's worth noting, some armour, but more to the point, with artillery. And that's something that, that Wagner seems to, to, to lack. There are the security forces, there are some special forces uh, within the, the FSB. There are the uh, Kremlin Guards forces, and there are about 50,000 cops. Now, a lot was made of this about how apparently, according to one particular telegram channel, that the sort of Moscow police were in disarray and they wouldn't be able to fight Wagner. Well, of course, you know, cops cannot directly take on, 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 on an equal footing hardened mercenaries. But on the other hand, I mean, within that 50,000, there's at least 500 trained police snipers, for example. Put those up on the tops of buildings and you actually do have something that, that can, can make a difference. And the rest of the cops, well, you know, fine, they may not be very good. But once you start issuing the assault rifles and assault carbines that they have in their arsenals, they can at least do a certain sort of second rank job. The point is that numbers were not on Wagner's side, geography was not on Wagner's side, and perhaps more, most importantly of all, the political realities were not. So you seize the centre of Moscow, let's say. The risk is that Prigozhin becomes like Napoleon, 
Napoleon, who after all seizes Moscow, and then sits there, increasingly peeved that Tsar Alexander doesn't realise that he's been defeated and should now surrender. And instead, he's, he's still holding on, and eventually it's Napoleon who has to retreat. Frankly, too late, after having consumed too much of his supplies and perhaps most importantly of all, too much of the fodder for his horses. So there is that risk that you end up sort of with, with some of the most valuable real estate in Russia, but nothing to do with it. So I think, you know, for, for all of these reasons, in some ways, Prigozhin was never going to be able to win unless he precipitated something broader, unless you therefore had wider mutinies within the security apparatus, unless other grandees filed into Putin's office as if this were the February Revolution in 1917 and basically said, Vladimir Vladimirovich, it's time for you to step down and you know, either you can retire or we can retire you. But with none of those things happening, what else is he going to do? Did it show just how truly rubbish Russian state systems are? Um, to a degree, but I think we also ought to have some caution. I mean, already there's some stuff out on Twitter about, well, what this shows is Ukraine should just invade Russia through Belgorod province because you know, there will be nothing to stop them. I mean, I think the, the institution that comes out with least credit is, once again, as so often, the FSB, the Federal Security Service. It's interesting, we, we've now got um, the usual kind of unsourced claims from US intelligence that, you know, certainly as of mid-June, they had an inkling that this was actually going to happen. Well, look, maybe. I mean, look, intelligence agencies are like any other government agency. They also understand the importance of spin and PR and want to demonstrate just how on top of things they are. But, you know, I'm, I'm willing to accept that. Well, frankly, if the CIA knew it, where on earth was the FSB's Military Counterintelligence Directorate? Its job is not actually primarily to look for foreign spies within the military. Its job is to watch all the arms-bearing services and make sure there's no risks of insurrections and coups. In other words, this is precisely what they're for. Now, either they hadn't yet properly adapted to the era of mercenary organisations and basically were just simply focusing on the regular military and such like, which is a failure, or they were looking at Wagner properly and yet still manage somehow not to notice this, because it's also involved a certain amount of stockpiling of fuel and, and ammunition and such like. Either way, it's a failure. Do I think the FSB will suffer? Well, no, because under Putin, let's be honest, you know, the FSB was Putin's old service, but under Putin they still seem to be thickly coated in Teflon. Their blunders have been so numerous. Let's be honest, they were the ones who initially said that uh, Yanukovych would survive the revolution of dignity in Ukraine. He didn't. They managed to shuffle the blame for that onto the Foreign Intelligence Service. They were the ones who were telling Putin back in the beginning of last year that they had this massive network of agents, suborned Ukrainians who were ready to turn to Russia as soon as Russia moves in to basically disrupt any Ukrainian attempt to resist, but also to create the basis for a proxy shadow government. It became clear that on the whole these people were either unable or are more to the point unwilling to do so. In many cases they had been perfectly happy to take the FSB's money, but had no intention of doing anything for it. Again, 
no blame seems to have attached to the FSB. Once again, they blundered. Well, who knows? Maybe three strikes and something happens, but uh, I wouldn't bet on it. But what about the, the, the military side of things, the defenders? Well, look, I think we have to realise two things. First of all, the degree to which, as I've mentioned, people were just simply not wanting to get involved. Either they didn't know what they should be doing or they would just rather not. It was a little bit, to me, reminiscent of the first day of the 1991 August coup, when you know, hardliners came in, put Gorbachev on house arrest, and did their best to sort of rewind the clock to pre-Perestroika days. Now, on that first day, the police service across the Soviet Union experienced a record level of people calling in sick. Why? Well, because they, they, didn't, they didn't know what was going on. They didn't want to commit themselves to a coup which would see them sort of oppressing their neighbours and which might not succeed. But nor did they want to stand up and be counted as being opposed to the coup. So the safe option is call in sick, see what happens. Over the course of that first day, it became clear that momentum was not with the coup plotters, but rather with, with Yeltsin and other radical reformist and nationalist forces. And all of a sudden, everyone jumps on that, that particular bandwagon. So, I mean, I think there may also have been a certain degree of kind of political uh, fence sitting, as well, as I said, of, of genuine sympathy for, for Wagner. But beyond that, and obviously I think it's worth noting that I think it's highly unlikely that a Ukrainian invasion would, would get anything like the same kind of response. But also, I mean, we have to appreciate the degree to which Wagner's key advantage was, was its speed. The fact is that they basically moved faster than the clumsy hierarchical Russian system could, could respond. What we actually had was a huge, rather dim behemoth of a dinosaur with a tiny brain atop a long, long neck, trying desperately to stamp on a rapid little velociraptor that was dancing around at its feet. So, I mean, you know, when it came down to it, ultimately, muscle was still on the state's side. We have to recognise that. Um, it was just simply that, you know, if you, if you look at the, the Savarda convoy, for example, that, that was heading towards Moscow, I mean, essentially, it was uh, basically bunches of guys in pickup trucks in the main and, and you know, other sort of you know, light lorries who were operating on a very sort of dispersed pattern. They were taking different roads and then meeting up and then moving on and such like. It wasn't one great big clunky convoy like the Russian initial Russian strike against Kiev back in February of last year. And, and as a result, it was that, that much harder for, for the Russians to know, well, where the hell they were, let alone what to do about them. But again, you know, this is a very, very specific kind of threat. These are exactly the kind of forces that are hard to stop, hard to pin down especially when they, 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 they're locals and they know the ground. But on the other hand, they are not heavy forces. They are relatively fragile if they'd actually got into a fight. So again, we, we shouldn't overplay. There is this kind of bizarre elevation now of Prigozhin and Wagner as somehow uh, you know, heroic freedom fighters. They're not. They, they are clearly competent at what they do. They are on the whole you know, rather unpleasant individuals, it would seem. But nonetheless, they were exactly the kind of threat against which the Russian state is, is least effective. So, Prigozhin took his shot. On one level, we can say that he lost. On another, if he was anyway you know, ready for the chop, 
and now he can operate from from Belarus and such like and still has access to his millions you know arguably in some ways he may have won but let's have a break and then let me talk a bit about now what and the lessons that we can learn just the usual mid-episode reminder that you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. Its corporate partner and sponsor is Conductor, which provides software for crisis exercises in hybrid warfare, counterterrorism, civil affairs and the like. But you can also support the podcast yourself by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks depending on their tier, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Mark Galliotti or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the episode. So, where do things go from here? Well, what about Wagner, first of all? Um, as I say, I think that Wagner in Russia and Ukraine is essentially going to be a spent force. There's no way that Shoigu will allow it to remain a separate force. They currently apparently meant to be rolled into the Ministry of Defence. Alternatively, they could well find themselves with the option of transferring into one of the other private military companies, which are, to a large extent, controlled by the Ministry of Defence, but one way or the other, they are not an independent force. And I think that might have some significance for the war in the longer term. In the short term, clearly, there's been a certain amount of disruption. Not that much. I mean, it's worth noting, after all, that it, it isn't, although the Ukrainians apparently redoubled their efforts to take back territory in, in Bakhmut, but, but nonetheless, you know, there's no signs that the Russians in the front line are at all falling back, refusing to fight or anything like that. And it's not just because of the considerable degree of information control over them. I think it's also that basically from their point of view, they, they still have a job to do. Likewise, although Wagner itself, I think, was being reconstituted, given a certain period just to sort of basically draw its breath after the meat grinder offensives of Bakhmut, the idea was to use this as a mobile and rather effective reaction force, reinforcements in case the Ukrainians get to punch through the main defensive lines. So yes, depending on quite what happens to the Wagner fighters, that may well be a force that the, the Russians can no longer count on, or at least not for a while. But on the other hand, again, they were behind the lines for the moment. And because this didn't go on, the talk of having to transfer paratroopers who are also part of the reserve to whether it's retake Rostov-on-Don or defend Moscow, and apparently some units were being prepped for relocation, well, that didn't happen. So, you know, not much is, is, would seem to be happening in terms of to, to disrupt the current programme. And if it does anything to slightly help re resolve this issue of the total lack of a unity of command, in Ukraine, well, that will actually be to Russia's advantage and Ukraine's dismay. But we'll, we'll basically have to see what happens there. What I think we can be pretty clear on is that insofar as we can believe what the Kremlin is saying, and the usual caveats apply, as I said, this is too close to the events to, to, for us to be certain of what's what. But while Prigozhin may be going to Belarus, Wagner is not, in the sense of, you know, maybe he'll move some of his corporate headquarters there and continue to run Wagner operations in Africa and the like. But it's not as though we're going to see a large number of fighters going with him. Again, there's some speculation that, in fact, this is all part of a cunning plan for the Russians to have fighting men able to 
bring influence to bear on Lukashenko. Well, Lukashenko's a wily enough bird not to allow thousands of foreign fighters who, do, who he does not control on his territory. So I, I, I see no sign that that is going to be the case. I mean, sure, Prigozhin will no doubt have his, his bodyguards and his aides and so forth, but not any large fighting forces. But of course, that does raise the question of well, what, what's going to happen in Africa. Look, the operations of Concord Group were ones in which Wagner played a significant part, but not necessarily the only part. I mean, in Africa, what Concord does is in some ways provide autocrat support services, a whole suite of different services. So, you know, everything from ways of spying and oppressing your political opposition and ways of running and managing elections so that you seem to be legitimate all the way through to bodyguards and then eventually fighters, you know, for those pesky little insurgencies that, that, that you want to fight. And Concord's great advantage compared with other mercenary and private security organisations is that because it is so large and because to, to a large degree it has been underwritten, if not bankrolled, by the Russian state, it can afford to take its pay in the form of a cut from you know mineral extraction or, or, or similar businesses. It doesn't actually have to be cash on the barrel. This is lucrative enough and important enough also for Moscow's soft power offensives in Africa that I don't think anyone will want to disrupt that. So you know we may well have a situation in which actually Prigozhin is still running in effect a Russian company out of Belarus in Africa. And if that sounds surreal, well, quite frankly, that is one of the least surreal things about this, this whole issue. What may be rather more questionable is whether or not Prigozhin will be able to do that for long. We do have to come back to this point that uh, it will be astonishing if Putin were willing to allow him to continue business as usual as a millionaire in Minsk. When it comes down to it, Putin is quite primal in how he regards loyalties, both in terms of his loyalties to those people closest to him and his expectations of loyalty from those around. I mean, let's be honest, one of the reasons for the particular toxic passion behind his war in Ukraine is his belief that essentially the Ukrainians, and clearly I'm not subscribing to this view, but this view that in effect the Ukrainians have betrayed the Russians by trying to go their own way. I think that does help some explain some of, of the reasons behind his, his particular vitriol here. But likewise, look, look, Prigozhin is a traitor. And so long as he survives, let alone thrives, then actually the weaker Putin looks. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it may well be that there will be a certain kind of period of grace, not least because he doesn't want to alienate Lukashenko. But nonetheless, I, I do not feel that anyone really should be giving much in terms of life insurance cover to Yevgeny Prigozhin. We'll have to wait and see. But Lukashenko, absolutely, again, assuming that what we've heard is true, Lukashenko definitely comes out a winner. I mean, he's the one who swoops in the deus ex machina from Minsk and resolves this crisis and provides the sort of the safe haven to which Prigozhin can go in suitably monitored exile. And in that respect, this once again tilts the balance of power. There has been this constant and fascinating struggle between Lukashenko and Putin. Lukashenko, I mean, his days in which he could actually maintain a certain degree of equipoise between Russia and the West, 
clearly long since gone. But nonetheless, this is not a man who's willing to simply become a mindless vassal of Moscow's. So he's been constantly trying to push back the bounds of his auto autonomy. And this war has created both challenges and opportunities. He's been desperate to keep his own military out of it, in part because his military have made it absolutely clear that they do not want to get involved in the war. And the military are one of the few institutions on which Lukashenko is still depending. But at the same time, he realises he has to give Putin something because he needs Putin's support, his, his tolerance, uh, and, put it bluntly, his, his money. So you know, this is why we have bases in Belarus being used to attack Ukraine. Belarusian training centers and indeed Belarusian trainers being used to brush up the skills of mobilized reservists and, and all this kind of thing. It's you know, everything short of actual combat operations. Well, you know, now Lukashenko can basically say, OK, you know, this this earns me a fair number of brownie points that I can trade in later. It's not going to in any way sort of allow Lukashenko to break out of Putin's orbit. But on the other hand, as it were, it, it makes it a rather more high altitude orbit, at least for a while. There's been this suggestion, actually, that instead of Lukashenko being the, the sole uh, interlocutor, that uh, Alexei Dumin, the governor of Tula, and someone who's both close to Putin and sometimes dis discussed as a potential Putin successor, was involved. Um, I, I haven't got to the bottom of this. It's something I'm looking at. It's worth noting that according to Interfax, he himself, or rather his press service, have very categorically denied that they were involved. But again as ever watch this space but if we're talking about people what about Shoigu and Gerasimov now again some people who I think are getting a little bit over conspiratorial are thinking that part of the deal which got Prigozhin to leave as well as suitcases full of money which again I don't actually buy that I think it's probably more likely that Moscow will allow Prigozhin to continue to access all his money where they could have just simply frozen it or just simply stolen it but anyway, um, that part of the deal, as well as money, was the heads of Shoigu and Gerasimov after a brief pause to sort of make it make it look as if it's not as a direct uh, part of any kind of such deal, and that they can be rusticated as I don't know senators or whatever else. Well, maybe though one could just as easily argue that in fact their position is now stronger than ever, in the sense that. Any point that, P that Putin dismisses them, people will think, ah, that was because of Prigozhin. I don't know. But on the other hand, what I would say that comes out of this is at a time when you know a fair number of people didn't really have the time to, to or inclination to, to get involved in, in the struggle, General Surovikin, who had been Gerasimov's predecessor as overall joint commander, uh, overall joint force commander, in the Ukrainian operations, and who had also been characterized by some as being particularly close to Prigozhin. Well, Surovikin came out with a video with a Kalashnikov on his knee in which he appealed to Wagner in the name of the sort of common warriorly bond to stand down and, and, and go back to their positions. So he had the opportunity to demonstrate his own loyalty and his commitment to the Kremlin. I don't think that will have failed to be noticed, and I think in, in a way this may well actually remove one of the black marks against him. So I think once again Surovikin may well be head of the field now for a successor to Gerasimov. 
But I think really it's likely that we will, if we are going to see a new chief of the general staff, we're going to be seeing a new defence minister. So again, we'll just have to wait and see about this. What does this all mean? What, what kind of a broad lessons, though, can we draw? Well, one of them is actually nothing to do with what's going on in Russia, but really about the assessment of Russia. Is it's, I really thought this was one of these case study moments of the credulity of consumers of clickbait social media. I mean, I was really struck by how much disinformation, misinformation, shoddy analysis, and just downright invention that, that one encountered on Twitter. Twitter is, after all, you know, a phenomenal resource in many ways, a way of connecting us to news sources and opening developments, and also of democratizing the production of news, in that someone who sees something going on there and then can, can comment on it or upload a video or whatever. So I'm not a sort of generic anti-Twitter person, but I, I really w was, was struck also by just how much nonsense there was there. Maybe it just opened my eyes or maybe it actually was worse than, than usual. But, you know, people who are saying that, you know, oh, clearly this is a false flag operation or that Putin is gaining. People who are claiming that there was... For example, we had, we had claims that there was panic in Moscow and that all the uh, seats for flights out of Moscow had sold out or were going for a million rubles plus and so forth. It took very, very little time to find out that not only was there no real panic in Moscow, but also that there were still ample tickets on flights out of the, of the city. And I mean, I did it not because I thought it was a, a, a crucial sort of uh, data point, but just simply it, it was one of these things where I just thought, well, that sounds wrong and that sounds easily checkable. There, there was a lot more of, of that around. And I think this is going to be one of the really big challenges for us in the future, particularly when you have this kind of very fast moving, very confusing kind of story is exactly disentangling wishful thinking, clickbait and genuine news. I mean, the classic example was precisely a, a willingness by many to take Prigozhin, whom the day before they would have denounced as a vicious, brutal, Nazi-loving war criminal, and now treat him as a patriot and a purveyor of, of accurate information. Now, in many ways, he has been quite astonishingly genuine and accurate in his overall portrayal of the war and his willingness to puncture the false narratives of the Kremlin. And I think that's, again, one of the sort of long-term implications is actually, uh, you know, one wonders just how much people have taken on board the things he said about, for example, the level of casualties being vastly higher than the official figures. But on the other hand, you know, the, taking, for example, his 25,000 soldiers uh, figure at face value, I mean, things like that, which clearly then inform the rest of the analysis. So I, again, you know, people have to be careful. And of course, this applies doubly to those liberal Russians who suddenly saw Prigozhin as obviously the, the knife that could stab at Putin's heart. And I fully understand that emotionally. But let's be perfectly honest. You can by all means say, I'm pleased about this particular event because it undermines the Putin regime and I regard the Putin regime as, you know, the op oppressive captors of my nation. All that perfectly true. 
you don't have to suddenly start thinking of Prigozhin as a patriot or whatever. He's, he's still just as nasty he, as he was the day before. Likewise, although dogs that don't bark in the night can be very useful sources of information, we also have to be careful about this. I mean, for example, much has been made in some quarters about the fact that we hadn't had a sort of a particular public re response to this from certain figures, people like Patrushev at the Security Council, Zolotov, head of the National Guard, and so forth, and therefore drawing from that inference that actually they were supportive. Look, this was, as I say, 24, 36 hours of intense and confusing activity. I would suspect that many of these people were not in the mood to be drafting press releases because they were damn busy doing their job. I mean, Zolotov in particular, and again, it, it will be interesting because although I don't have any reason to think that Zolotov was at all disloyal to Putin, I mean, again, he's one of these figures who depend on, on Putin for his future, even though some people say he was close to Prigozhin, which may be possible, they're both outsiders, they're both thugs. But the point is that I imagine Zolotov was busy desperately trying to round up National Guard commanders on the phone to give them explicit orders, and many of them may well have chosen to be very, very hard to reach for the very reason, as I've mentioned, that they didn't want those explicit orders. You know, people are doing their jobs. Now, again, I feel that actually the National Guard and Zolotov did their job very badly, just as with the FSB. And one can see a direct correlation between, as it were, the indulgence that Putin provides his favourites and the degree to which they take that indulgence and use an excuse to do a rubbish job. But hey, that's Putin's problem, not mine. But again, let's not read too much into the fact that they, they didn't make statements. After all, it took Putin a whole night before he, he made his intemperate address. The real question is how far the state is working. And in here, I think it is clear that the state is, is still kind of staggering along. But the, the disconnect between the, sort of the, the technocrats' world, that of business and finance and social administration and so forth, and the Silovic world, the men of power, the military, the security apparatus, the intelligence services, I, I think is becoming increasingly clear. The former are doing a, a pretty damn good job considering the circumstances and considering the fact that they have strikingly little support from Putin. The latter are doing a really bad job despite or maybe because of the degree to which Putin is closely associated and involved with them. And so, look, again, I think this, is, this is means that the state is simply becoming more and more ungainly, more and more dysfunctional. If one thinks about it, look, there are three pillars to Putin's state that keeps it in power. There is his and his system le legitimacy. There is the presence of large amounts of money, which he can throw at problems. And when it is a final backstop, there is the control and the discipline of the security apparatus. Well, look, Putin's legitimacy has been declining anyway, and inevitably he's going to take a hit from this, rightly. The money is becoming less and less available, especially if Russia wants to be able to prosecute its Ukraine war for potentially years in the future. And as regards the unity and control of the security apparatus, and here, look, let me make it clear, I'm saying this suffused with the most ungentlemanly smugness. 
I've been saying for a while that actually we shouldn't assume that Putin's control of the security apparatus, and arguably particularly the National Guard, is that certain and comprehensive. And I've had a certain pushback from certain quarters by people saying, oh, you know, you're just relying on a few telegram channels or whatever else. Well, I mean, I think, and I'll end my smugness in a moment, I promise, but I do think that actually this demonstrates the degree to which the National Guard, which after all is not an incompetent force in the main, but nonetheless that actually we should not assume that just because it's meant to be Putin's Praetorian Guard that it will act as one such. It has its own concerns, its own loyalties, and frankly they did not perform this time. None of this, of course, it means it's going to, the regime is going to collapse soon. But what it means is that you know each time one has these these black ducks or indeed fully fledged black swans coming along, the state is in a less effective position to deal with them. And I think this is why, I'll be honest, I welcome this mutiny precisely because it further undermines the capacity, the strength and the credibility of, of the Putin state and brings closer to the day when this regime will fall and maybe I can actually get back to Russia. Now, OK, I appreciate that may not be the, the primary concern, but hey, allow me my own, my own thoughts. Putin, in his quite interesting, as I said, if intemperate and quite frankly badly judged, address on on the mutiny explicitly drew a parallel with 1917 talking about a stab in the back that denied russia victory and so forth well not that russia had many victories uh, awaiting it in 1917 and this raises the interesting parallel of the kornilov rising where you had uh, basically a rather reactionary czarist general turning back essentially trying to impose his will on the provisional government that came in power after the abdication of Tsar Nicholas II. And the point why that was so important was that in order to quell Kornilov and his forces, the provisional government empowered and armed a whole variety of actors, including the Bolshevik Red Guard, who were at that time sort of part of the structures of the, of the Soviets, the, the People's Councils. And these were the very people who, in due course, were going to topple the provisional government and elevate Lenin and the Bolsheviks to power. So, look, this is clearly not a direct parallel. There is no Trotsky and Red Guard to, to empower. But on the other hand, what it does say is that actually even a victorious elimination of a threat to the state, particularly uh, a mutiny, can actually leave this, this, that state in a much, much weaker position than before. And it also imposes political constraints. Let me raise another mutiny. 1825, the Decembrists. Very different kind of mutiny. These were on the whole uh, liberal junior army officers, sort of people who had been to France at the end of the Napoleonic era, triumphant, but nonetheless also realising actually how better people in Western Europe lived and learning some of the sort of the values and the political ideals of the time. The Decembrists were, were, were crushed. And Nicholas I thereafter in some ways found that the shadow of the Decembrists would always lie over him. It would constantly inform him a fear that if, if he acted weakly that 
he was in effect inviting another rising. And this meant that although he was, for example, fully aware that serfdom was both morally evil and also economically dysfunctional, it's one of the reasons why he never was willing to take the risk and actually address the, the question of serfdom, a rather poisoned legacy for his successor, Alexander II. So the question will be, okay, how going forward will this mutiny affect Putin's policies? As I said, I mean, does it mean that he feels he's stuck with Shoigu and Gerasimov with all the effect that will have to army morale and so forth precisely because Prigozhin wanted them sacked? Will he feel that, in fact, the lessons from this is that he needs to be tougher? Will he actually try and address this whole issue of the constant uh, feuding of different agencies and try and reduce that? Because the interesting thing is, if he's really going to address that, the next obvious target would be Ramzan Kadyrov and his Kadyrovci, who, once, as is always the way, claimed that they were absolutely supportive of Putin and ready to wipe out the, rebel the uh, rebellion any time, nonetheless never seem to have actually got anywhere where they might have had anything to do. But still, so does it mean Putin does anything about that? Or does it simply mean that Putin becomes further paralysed? I think this is, this is my, my, my closing point. One of the, I think, the, the abiding features, I think, of Putin in, in, in the past couple of years is that although, on the one hand, he did something dramatic, the invasion of Ukraine, we should recognise that I don't think he thought it was going to be anything as, as dramatic. And otherwise, generally speaking, Putin has been absent and or paralysed. That faced with a whole variety of intractable problems and a decision tree that seems laden with poisonous fruit. He doesn't know which way to go. He doesn't know which, way to, which route to pick. And therefore, he goes nowhere. He picks nothing. That is becoming increasingly evident. And the very fact that it seems to be that Lukashenko, in effect, has to save him from his own creation will, I think, sort of further not just uh, well, clearly humiliate Putin, but also, I think, underline I think, for him, I think, the existential dangers around. And those dangers, I think, as I say, they tend to paralyse him more than anything else. We'll have to wait and see. You know, maybe I'm completely wrong and we're going to see some kind of radical, bold new approaches coming in the, in the coming weeks from Putin. But when it comes down to it, I wouldn't bet money on it. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well.